The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted today to welcome a friend and colleague, Jill Nussenau. She's been on Food Sleuth Radio before, a very popular guest and author. She is an alternative registered dietitian who has been teaching people how to improve their lives through eating a whole food, plant-based diet since 1985. In 1996, Jill began incorporating her favorite kitchen tool, the pressure cooker, into her classes and books. She's been an adjunct culinary faculty member at Santa Rosa Junior College for more than 25 years and has been teaching the McDougal program since 2002. And one of my favorite cookbooks of Jill's, which was the subject of our previous interview, is called The Veggie Queen, Vegetables Get the Royal Treatment, and Jill is also known as The Veggie Queen. I wanted her to be my guest today because of her brand new book that I think is perfect for anyone who wants to change their life. And I think that as we approach the new year, there are two times of the year that people, I think, really look at dieting seriously. And one is the new year, and the other is swimsuit season. So, Jill, welcome. It's so good to have you. Thank you, Melinda. I'm laughing. I never think about swimsuit season, but you're right. That's right, because you're based in California where just about every month is swimsuit season. But there are two times of the year where people really become, I think, overly bodily conscious. And just having returned from the big Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Association meeting in Atlanta, I can tell you that one of the biggest take-home messages was we have to be better consumers of more plant-based diets. And that's why I thought, well, there's no better authority on this than you. So your new book, Jill, is called Nutrition Champs, a new way of thinking about food groups that will change your life. And I want to know why you wrote this book. Well, Melinda, you know, my other two books were really recipe-based. And I thought, you know, it's time for me to, like, wear my nutrition hat a little bit and get people to really think a little bit more nutritionally. And the reason I wrote the book was because there is a well-known doctor, Dr. Joel Furman, who came up with a plan for people to eat, which he called initially GOMBS, G-O-M-B-B-S, and then he changed that to G-BOMBS, which stands for Greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds. And it really got me thinking, and I thought, and I kept, like, mulling it over, and I was like, you know, I think I can come up with something better. And so I came up with CHAMPS, which stands for Cruciferous Vegetables, Herbs and Spices, Alliums, Mushrooms, Peas, Beans, and Lentils, and Seeds and Nuts. And in this book, the thing that makes it so interesting is I thought, you know, I don't want it just to be about me. So I got 44 other people to contribute recipes because I thought, I know what I know, but the more people you have who do different things, who can contribute, the better off everybody is. Mm -hmm. So I 
just wanted to put it out there. I think these are the foods that really, really change people's health. I agree. And I want to also let our listeners know that on the first page, you really sum it up so well when you say, as an eater, please make the wisest food choices for yourself and the planet. Our interconnected web of life depends on it. So as we face the new dietary guidelines developing around sustainability, I think that this book also fits in beautifully. Now, first of all, we should also let our listeners know that this book is heavy on recipes. I mean, it's not like you're going to get a lot of nutrition without application, and that's what I love about it. I wanted to ask you, though, about how you chose the 40 contributors. Well, it was an interesting process. I asked quite a few people, and I didn't really limit how many people I asked, but I either knew them or I knew of their work, and I had seen some of their recipes, and I had very specific guidelines for what I wanted. So if people had recipes that I thought would fit, I asked them, and then they had to deliver. So between those two things, the people who showed up were the people who got in. Well, and you also have in the back of the book a review of who each of those people are and why they made the cut. And recipe development is very difficult. I mean, I find that the recipes you have in the book are easy to follow. There are certain ingredients that some people around the country may find a little bit more difficult to locate. And so you also have in the back of the book places where they can find some of these ingredients or an alternative. So I like that. But I want to go back to this nutrition champs, and I want to ask you why you chose to fraction out those particular food groups. So how about if we go through each of the food groups and talk about what makes them uniquely important for our health? Okay. Okay. So should we start with cruciferous? Absolutely. The interesting thing about this chapter was, you know, it's funny because I put the book together and I thought, oh, there's going to be 150 recipes. That's what I kept telling my designer, 150 recipes. And when I got to the end of the cruciferous chapter, I realized I had 60 recipes right there. And the reason is because these vegetables are probably the most important or one of the most important vegetables that people can eat. And the reason the chapter is so big is because there's so many of them, and many people don't realize. So how about if I go quickly through the list, and people can hear what's in there? Because sometimes people say, well, I don't really like broccoli. Right. So these are the ones that are in the chapter, and there are others. And the cruciferous vegetables include arugula, bok choy, broccoli, broccoli rabe, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, collard greens, horseradish, kale, kohlrabi, mustard greens, radish, rutabaga, tatsoi, turnip, turnip greens, and watercress. And I say if you cannot find at least three from that category, then you need to rethink your eating. And so I wanted a very broad spectrum of recipes that would hit on all of those. So when people said, well, you know, I like arugula, but what do I do with it? they could then figure out what it is that they would do with it. And the book actually starts the first recipe is arugula and herb pesto. And that recipe came about, I love arugula, but a lot of people do not. And I know why some people don't is because it's a little bit bitter. Mm -hmm. And some 
many of these vegetables have a slightly bitter component, and the interesting thing is that bitterness actually makes the vegetables uh, more nutritionally active, mm-hmm. I'll say. And so many of these vegetables are cancer protective and very important for eating on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so that recipe in particular was to get people to like think in a different way about how could I use my arugula other than putting it in my salad. Yeah, I agree with you. I think arugula is, what I love about it is that it's peppery. And I just like to put a few leaves on a sandwich or in a salad. It really just wakes up the whole dish. But you have additional creative ways to use arugula, so I love that. And I also love your first line in this chapter, which says, kale seems as if it may be the new black. And I think back, we're about the same age, and so when I think back decades ago when we were new to our profession, I don't even know if I saw kale on any menu. It's funny because kale, I would have to say kale is already on the edge of not being the most popular vegetable. Yeah. I think last year it was cauliflower. And so it's so interesting to see anything that has to do with vegetables that is a trend. Mm -hmm. It's like, huh. You know, so I see this on a regular basis. I just got some information on the 2015 trends, Mm -hmm. and I believe one whole thing was on vegetables of some sort. Um, So I think you're right. I mean, it's funny because I never ate kale growing up. I didn't even really know what it was, and I remember I came home from college, and my mother had a garden, and she served it, and it was the winter, and I was like, what is this? It's so delicious, and it was kale, and winter kale is much better than summer kale because it loves to have cool weather in order to get sweeter. Yeah. And that's basically for any of the greens, do much better, and they're not as hot or bitter or kind of... I would describe it as, you know, that um, the funky, sulfury smell that you get sometimes when you cook broccoli or cauliflower. Right, right. It kind of goes away when the weather cools off. So um, Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. And I think that people don't realize, because vegetables are available all year round in the store, I think people don't realize there are seasons for vegetables. Right. And I think that's really important because I have a friend, she's like, eggplant, January, eggplant. I'm like, no, eggplant does not come really well in January. So I think you have to put on your thinking cap sometimes and say, why does this kale taste so good right now if it's December or January or February? Mm -hmm. And I should put a plug in for recently harvested vegetables. I live in the Midwest. I've had kale that's come from California, and I've had kale at my local farmer's market. And there is absolutely a tremendous taste difference, as well as nutritional loss, as we know. So when you can find a farmer's market in your area, they are growing by leaps and bounds. I know you are a fan of them as well. That's really the place to get these local seasonal vegetables and to learn what is local and seasonal for each of our regions. But before we move on from that, point. I just want to go back to this cruciferous vegetable chapter because in addition to having a lot of recipes, you also do bring in the reason why we need to eat them. And I am fascinated, as you are, with the compounds in certain vegetables that are cancer protective. So in cruciferous vegetables, you mentioned the glucosinolates. 
And these are the compounds that I think they're the ones that give a little bit of that bitter taste. Is that correct? I believe they are. And so, well, I mean, there's there's two things. Those are related to the sulfur compounds. Right. And so I, I don't know exactly how they're interrelated, but that's the main thing with them, mm-hmm. especially the leafy greens. Yeah. More than the other cruciferous vegetables. And another nice thing that you do with your recipes is you have sauces to go with them. And the sauces have their own rich and very worthwhile nutritional ingredients. And I think that that really helps the vegetables go down is when you have a savory or even a sweet sauce to help the flavors come together and liven up. Absolutely. I think that people, I think it's fascinating that people, I'm going to tell you. So people say, say well, I'm, I eat my broccoli steamed. And I always tell people, if I only ate steamed vegetables, I would be bored. Yeah. I don't think it improves the flavor. I don't think it actually, the nutrition is okay. But I don't think you get the most out of them by always steaming your vegetables. Mm -hmm. I think you need to become a little creative with how you cook your vegetables. So when you ask people about vegetables, they're like, oh, I make these roasted vegetables. They're so delicious. It's like, okay. That'll tell you right there that maybe steaming isn't the best way. Yeah. But if you're going to steam, you usually it's a good idea. You can't even get stuff to stick on your vegetables if you try, if you've seen them. So having like a little sauce, like one of my favorites is tahini, lemon, and garlic. Mm-hmm. Just pour that on and it's like yum. And it also has a nutritional benefit because the fat in the tahini actually helps you absorb more of the um fat-soluble vitamins that are in your vegetables. Exactly. No wonder we love nutrition so much. It's so interesting and so exciting. And I need to just take a break and remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jill Nussenau. She is a fellow registered dietitian and a terrific vegetarian cook and author. Her latest book, Nutrition Champs, A New Way of Thinking About Food Groups That Will Change Your Life. And I think that you so eloquently show how and why these particular food groups are so powerful. So let's move on from cruciferous, unless there's anything else you want to say about them, and let's move on to the next category, which are simply herbs. This is probably one of my favorite categories, herbs and spices, because this goes hand-in-hand with all the rest of the, the ingredients Your food does not have to be boring. The way to make your food interesting is by using herbs and spices. This chapter was very difficult for me because I only included a handful, in my opinion, of the herbs and spices, the ones that more people would use, only because it's a huge category. And I just want to mention that in India, where they use lots of spices, they seem to have the lowest rate of Alzheimer's of anywhere in the world because they eat curry powder and curry powder can be any combination of spices but generally the one that they include the most is turmeric Mm -hmm. and that's the yellow part and that yellow spice actually contains such a high level of antioxidants that it protects people's brains. And the thing that's so fascinating about herbs and spices is you don't need to use a lot to get a really beneficial effect. 
but you need to use them often. Mm-hmm. And because there's so many different ones, it it's easy to do. So people often think, oh, the parsley is, you know, just the garnish there. And it's like, well, just make parsley part of your dish or add some fresh basil if you can. Or, I mean, I'm a cilantro lover, so, you know, the more the better. But it's easy to pick the ones that you like and use them regularly. And pretty much no matter where you live, you can plant little pots of herbs, which has another beneficial effect because that gets you more involved in your food. Mm-hmm. And you are growing something live, and I think that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I do too. So I, there's a whole. I mean, herbs and spices are just my favorite because you can take something very plain and you can make it so much different in terms of what it is. I agree. And you know, there was a session at the big Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting that spoke specifically to the power of turmeric, and where in the GI tract it's absorbed, taking it in terms of food versus in capsules. You have a section in this book regarding storage, and I think that that's a very key component because, like everything else that's subject to oxidative damage, we're going to lose nutritional value over time. And I don't know if I'm the only one, but I'm sure I've got vintage herbs and spices tucked away in my spice cabinet. Do you have a general rule of thumb when you're talking to people about how long to keep these kinds of products on the shelves and when to add them to the mulch pile? Well, generally for powdered herbs and spices, you don't want to keep them longer than six months to a year. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge proponent of having people buy their herbs and spices in bulk because uh, I just did this in a class at the junior college. I brought in a bag of curry powder. I paid less than $3 for about four ounces of curry powder which is a huge amount. We didn't even use all of it in that one particular class. So I think that if you buy in bulk, you don't have to spend a lot of money. I refill my spice jars. And the ones that you use most often, you're going to buy most often. I'll just tell you a story about nutmeg. I used to hate nutmeg. I mean, I just thought, oh, it's horrible. It's just powdery and disgusting. And I got a recipe from a well-known chef, and he said, use fresh grated nutmeg. So I thought, you know, it gave me the recipe. I'll go get it. And I got the nutmeg, and I grated it. And I was like, oh, this isn't anything like what I thought it was. And it was because I probably, this was a long time ago, was using my mother's 40-year-old powdered nutmeg. Exactly. So I think that's what happens. People go, oh, I don't like that. But when you have fresh herbs and spices, it makes a difference. Now, one of the things is if you buy seeds, like cumin seeds, they last longer as the whole seed, as any other whole seed would, without being ground, Mm -hmm. before they're ground. So that's one way you can buy herbs and spices or spices and keep them around longer, is to have them be whole. Mm-hmm. And your dried herbs will last quite a long time, but still, they don't last forever. You know, I think the whole thing that's so funny is you, I think often I have to remind people, this is food. Food doesn't stay good forever. It's not like your computer, which doesn't stay good forever either, but it's not made out of some inert material. This is food. Yeah. So pay attention. You know, if you've got the old herbs and spices, 
toss them out, get some fresh ones, and then see what the difference is. You know, I have started buying ginger and turmeric root and keeping it in my freezer, and I have a brand-new kitchen tool, and I'm sure you have one of these. It's like a rasp. It's a very fine grate that I can just take it out frozen, scrape that root off into my dish, and have really flavorful, powerful nutrition, and then I just put the rest of it back in the freezer. And I wonder, when you are buying even the ground herbs in bulk, are you freezing them mostly to help protect against oxidative damage? I actually do not. I recommend that people put their dried herbs and spices in a cool, dark cabinet, which often means not above your stove. So, no, because there is an issue um, with them getting moisture in them, which will ruin them. So your idea of putting the fresh root in and freezing it is great, but often I think it's just better to keep them in a cool, dark place Uh and then use them within six months or so. Right. Okay, a little encouragement to get those spices moving, and I just want to put a plug in for this chapter because you have many ways to use herbs and spices that probably most of us, including myself, have not even dreamed of. We are beyond the halfway mark, and we have only gotten through two chapters. So for the benefit of our listeners, I'm going to mention alliums, mushrooms, pulses, seeds, and nuts. And I want to jump ahead. I think most of us know the value or we've read about the value of garlic and onions and chives. But let's move on to mushrooms because I think they are especially exciting with regard to cancer prevention. Well, mushrooms are exciting in many ways. And I love mushrooms. And I'm a mushroom hunter and a mushroom eater. The thing is, they're not only great for cancer prevention, but they actually help lower cholesterol. In addition, blue oyster mushrooms have been shown to do this, and they are amazing for your immune system. So the reason that they are so good is they contain a compound, an indigestible carbohydrate, and which is called chitin, which is generally found in the exoskeletons of crustaceans. And so we we don't really eat it, but the thing about mushrooms is that fiber really helps us, and they contain something called beta-glucans. And so that type of sugar compound really helps with many things. So they have multiple uses, and there are many of them. I pretty much stuck to the edible mushrooms but I do want to put in a plug for the inedible mushrooms, which are also amazing for your health. My husband, unlike me, is a mushroom hater, but he takes medicinal mushroom capsules and has done that for quite a number of years, and it has truly helped boost his immune system. Hmm. I would, of course, teaching people how to cook, I would, of course, say eat the mushrooms. And if I were only going to pick couple mushrooms to eat, I would definitely include shiitake mushrooms in there. They are known to have cancer protective effects. In Japan, they actually isolate one of the ingredients and give it as a capsule for women with breast cancer. How interesting. I I believe that, in my opinion, it's better to eat the whole mushroom than to eat any kind of compound that comes from it. Yeah. Because... There's some kind of synergistic effect in having the whole mushroom. So if you even care anything about mushrooms, 
I would eat them. I would say any kind of mushroom, and they should all be cooked, which often surprises people. They're like, what about those ones I put on my salad? The reality is they contain a compound that is best if it is cooked. Now, if you eat a few mushrooms on your salad, every once in a while it probably won't hurt you. It's called agaritine, but I would not recommend people eating raw mushrooms on a regular basis. Well, you've got wonderful recipes in here for mushrooms. You also have ways to prepare them. So I think that people will be overjoyed to see the different kinds of options that are available to us. Pulses, beans, lentils, and peas. We have five minutes, so... Okay, uh, let's wrap it up. Okay, I (laughs) I want you to pick out from the remaining chapters the key points that you want to send home with our listeners. Well, I think that beans are somewhat misunderstood, and I think they're incredibly important in people's diets. I mean, they have been recommended in the dietary guidelines for years, but I don't think people have heard that message that they should be included in what you eat at least three times a week. And I think the main thing is there's a huge variety of beans, and you don't have to eat a lot of them in order to get beneficial effects. They help lower cholesterol. They help regulate blood sugar. And most people will find a type of beans that they really like that they can eat on a regular basis. I, of course, like to encourage people to cook their own beans, but if that's not possible, canned beans are fine too. So I think that it's really looking at, oh, and additionally, it's not only beans because it's peas and lentils. So lentils probably are one of the easiest things to make because they cook quickly and they don't need to be soaked in order to be cooked. And when I talk to people, most people love lentil soup, and they buy it in a can. I'm like, do you know that in 45 minutes, if you're not using a pressure cooker, you can have your own lentil soup? And they're like, oh. And the reason I love cooking is because you can make that lentil soup however you want if you do it yourself. You know, I agree. And I think, though, that people, or most of the people I speak with, avoid beans because of the gas. And it's embarrassing if they're out in public or it makes them uncomfortable. Any secrets on reducing that? Well, one of the there's two there's a couple of secrets. One is the more you eat beans, the easier it is for you to digest them often. Also, if you're cooking your own beans, you can put in a piece of kombu seaweed, which often helps make them more digestible, as well as using ginger and fennel seeds will often help with your beans. But what a lot of people do is they don't eat a lot of beans, and then they eat a lot of hummus, and they're like, I don't know, my stomach's all upset. So I would say eating small amounts regularly is probably the key to getting beans and not having issues. Well, we're going to have to let our listeners go to your website and find this book to cover the last chapter on seeds and nuts. But I can't say enough about the user-friendliness of this book, I want to refer everyone to your website. And I think that if you go to the website, gosh, you've got videos on there even, cooking videos, but it's www.theveggiequeen.com, and you can learn about all of Jill's previous work and her new book, which I highly recommend, Nutrition Champs, New Way of Thinking About Food Groups That Will Change Your Life. With just a few seconds left, would you like to send our listeners off with a charge for the new year? Choose your foods wisely. Eat the best that you can because you're the one who's in charge of your body. (laughs) 
You know, no one else can do it for you. So everything you put in your mouth counts. Absolutely. There's no cheating. It's just what you do. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. Thank you so much, Jill, for being my guest. In closing, I want to thank Jill Nussenau, registered dietitian and author of multiple books. The one we've been speaking about is Nutrition Champs, New Way of Thinking About Food Groups That Will Change Your Life. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for another great read, Jill, and thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me, Melinda.